0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The planet has gotten a lot warmer, and in our lifetime we could see an ice-free Arctic. How will that impact ocean life, including the many whale species that navigate the world's waterways? Today we sit down with Smithsonian paleontologist Nick Pynson to talk about his new book, Spying on Whales. Pynson has traveled extensively to investigate the past and present lives of whales. We'll hear what he and other scientists have discovered from looking at whale bones from millions of years ago. How did whales become some of the largest mammals today? We'll also learn about how whaling in the 19th and 20th centuries dramatically impacted the population of many whale species. Coming up, we'll hear from the Director of Science Education at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts. Now, have you seen a whale up close? What is it about these creatures that excite us? My first time seeing a whale was in the Massachusetts Bay off Plymouth. The sight of a humpback mother and calf left me and the others on a whale-watching boat speechless. I wonder what those whales thought of us. You can join our conversation, too, the number 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at wmpr.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome to the show from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in Rochester, Minnesota, Dr. Nick Pienson, a paleontologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, and author of this new book what we'll be talking about this hour, Spying on Whales, the Past, Present, and Future of Earth's Most Awesome Creatures. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Happy to be here. I want to let our listeners know that there's an excerpt of your book on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I wanted to start, uh, Nick. uh, First, it's a great read, and uh, we'll be talking a lot about um, what you've uncovered uh, in your research and what other scientists have uncovered uh, through the years. But uh, we thought it was funny that you mentioned that in your book that you weren't a whale hugger. So how did you end up studying them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I think people come to the organisms that they study in a lot of different ways uh, through a lot of uh, different experiences that they have in their life. Some of them can be, um, can happen to them in childhood. Uh, when I was a kid, I was just interested in all sorts of things. I was interested in, um, I was interested in fossils. I was interested in Egyptology. I was interested in sharks, whales. Um, So all those interests kind of uh, led me into a career where I study evolution. And what I discovered in the course of, uh, as I write in the book, in the course of college and, and grad school was that looking at the evolution of whales was a great way to understand these bigger stories in the history of life. Uh, whether they're about how ecology works or how life changes through time, because whales have undergone this incredible change in their evolutionary history. Um, that that was kind of um, what inspired me, was that they're amazing animals. What can we know about their lives as a scientist? Um, I thought that there, there was a lot more questions to answer, and that's that's an exciting thing.
0: Uh, your book also mentions whales are the Earth's most awesome creatures. We're going to get into that evolutionary his- history in just a couple of minutes, but can you give us an idea of how diverse uh, whales are today and the, the different types that that, we, that live among us?
1: Absolutely. Uh, whales are mammals, first off. Um, there are some 80-odd species that we have uh, named today. And there are species that are familiar, I think, to listeners, uh, killer whales, sperm whales for those in New England. Uh, that was the some one of the target species for Yankee whaling. Um, the North Atlantic right whale is another example of whale, uh, a different whale species. Um, then there are other species that are less well-known, beaked whales are these strange deep diving whales that occasionally wash up on the eastern seaboard. There's also river dolphins. So we forget sometimes that there are species of whales that have adapted to freshwater river systems, and uh, these include river dolphins in areas where uh, parts of the world where they are under incredible threat from human activity because they share the same waterways that we do, incredibly dense populations of humans do. Uh, So this is in South Asia. This is in South America. It used to be even in the Yangtze River in China, and we now think that species of river dolphin is now extinct. So... um, that range of, of environments and the range of species is diverse. That in, goes from pole to pole and in almost every waterway we can imagine. Uh, that gives you a lot of different abilities to tell their story, a lot of different sources to tell their stories, I think.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, several different uh, types of whales. So there's the tooth whales and then the baleen whales. Uh, describe the difference. Right. Uh, the, and many of us have probably heard of baleen, but explain what that means exactly.
1: Sure. So when when I say whale, I'm talking about everything that we might label a whale, a dolphin, or a porpoise. They're all whales to me. Um, And they fit into two. Those that are alive today fit into two big groups. The ones that filter feed. So those are the ones with the baleen. uh, And it's this kind of mustachioed uh, structure that hangs from the roof of their mouth. Um, and these include the whales that I think people are very familiar with, humpback whales, blue whales. Uh, they filter feed for a living. They're able to take in a large volume of water and sieve out the prey that happens to be uh, captured in that process, straining out water from prey and then swallowing the prey. That's that's what baleen does. That's the filter for the filter feeders. Are they like cartilage? Th- then there's the other group. Are they like cartilage? Uh, they- no, they're more like keratin. They're uh, more like our fingernail uh, or our hair. And so there are these plates that are kind of uh, grown from tubules that all mat together. And um, and when uh, uh, they kind of uh, exist, these parallel-like racks in the upper mouth, uh, it seems like a strange structure. But it's not so weird when we realize that they're near relatives on land. Cows and pigs and sheep and camels sometimes have these roughened palates, too. So there's there's a distant evolutionary basis for, for this elaborate structure in the mouth. Those are filter-feeding whales. The other branch are the toothed whales, which are able to echolocate. And um, that's, that's a, even an, a completely different uh, set of anatomical innovations that let them navigate the underwater world using sound. Um, but those the the echolocating whales include killer whales, sperm whales, the beaked whales that I mentioned, river dolphins, all the porpoises. Um, it's that diversity is really kind of spectacular when you start thinking about it.
0: Uh, as a paleontologist at the Smithsonian, you're overseeing uh, thousands of fossil uh, collections, including uh, about 15,000 uh, whale fossil collections. So can we talk a little bit about uh, when um, when you're out of the office, so to speak, and where you're going mm-hmm. to make
1: these discoveries? Yeah. Sure. I mean, um, the great thing about studying the evolution of whales is that you can travel to any continent on the planet, and make an important discovery about that history. And that's because you have 50 million years of their evolutionary history to look at. And you can examine, um, uh, I mean, a lot of that is tied to the, the rocks that they're found in. So ocean levels have changed through time, and continent positions have changed over these millions of years. Uh, what that means is that you can find the rocks in which whales uh, uh, are preserved in all around the world. Um, so I've been fortunate to, to chase whales uh, all around the world in this way. Uh, and what's – what's I, probably, I think the first fact that would surprise most listeners is that we find the earliest whales on land. We don't actually find them in, in marine rocks. We find their evidence that uh, – we find their skeletons that show that they had weight-bearing limbs, weight-bearing hind limbs, weight-bearing forelimbs. Uh, As I wrote in the book, they hardly seem like whales. But we know that they are because of key anatomical traits in their skulls.
0: And so uh, you write in the book uh, when you talk about these early ancestors of whales, uh, they lived on land, they had legs, they were the size of dogs?
1: Yeah, they were small too. And I think that's something else that uh, would surprise people as well is that whales weren't always big. And in fact, their land ancestors were much smaller than they are today. Uh, they're about the size of a dog, and and it's not just one um, w- early whale in particular. There's a whole diverse uh, radiation of these different early experiments and what it was like to be uh, the ancestor of these whales. So, and they, as I write in the book, they look a bit like dogs, but they really don't really fit that analogy because they weren't related to dogs. They were more closely related to hoofed animals. And we see all these different kinds of early whales, some that had elongate snouts, uh, others that were probably more adapted to living in water than others. And all these different experiments went extinct, except for the ones that completely severed ties to land and became fully adapted to life in the water. And that happened within about 10 million years.
0: Uh, Nick, how were you able, and you and other scientists, uh, able to figure out that if they didn't look like uh, the modern whales we see today, that they were related?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. So that relates to being a good anatomist and looking at the parts that are available to you, and that includes scraps of bone, making a really good guess out of uh, not that much information. Uh, And this is the art, this is the science, sorry of comparative anatomy, being able to take a small scrap of bone and compare it to the library. And this is where museum collections become important. Museums hold those records of life in the past. And so you have comparisons that you can make for an individual piece of bone where you might not get the whole skeleton of these early whales, but you have enough to compare it to everything else you know. And the key parts that we get uh, do tell us these specific anatomical features of the brain case or of the ear bones. And those traits look like nothing else. They look more like today's whales than they look like any other mammals. And that's how we know these early whales, which otherwise don't exactly look like whales, fit in the family tree closer to the whales we know today than anything else that we can find.
0: This is Where We Live. Joining us from Minnesota Public Radio Studios in Rochester, Minnesota, is Dr. Nick Pyneson, paleontologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, author of the book *Spine and Whales, the Past, Present, and Future of Earth's Most Awesome Creatures. An excerpt of his book is on our website, wmpr.org uh, slash where we live. Uh, part of your book, is, it's, it reads like a detective story, uh, Nick, and you yeah. take us on some of the expeditions, including uh, a fascinating one in Chile. Can you Can you describe for our listeners uh, the challenge that you and other scientists had when uh, a whole uh, bunch of whale fossils were were found in a specific location in Chile?
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to uh, what I mentioned earlier about traveling around the world. Uh, if you're a whale paleontologist, you do have to go look for those fossils in the first place, and it takes a lot of effort to to forge these collaborations. Um, that's one of the great things about doing science, for me at least, is that um, it involves travel, and that makes it a bit about science diplomacy. And so you never quite really know what you're going to find uh, before you set out to do it. And we were in the Atacama of Chile doing something else when we had an opportunity to work at the site called Cerro Baena, which um, in Spanish means whale hill. And it turned out through the accident of geopolitics. So this is, again, science happens in a social context. And we were at the, happened to be at the right place at the right time to see as a road construction company was expanding the Pan-American Highway in this random part of, of the Atacama of Chile, Uh, to make room for mining equipment. Chile has mineral resources that are um, needed by emerging economies. And as they were expanding the highway, they came across not just one or two or three, but over 40 skeletons of fossil whales, some 30 feet long, preserved perfectly nose to tail. And so we just happened to be there at the right place at the right time. And we didn't really know what we were going to do about it. Uh, Studying a single large whale skeleton is an ordeal, but 40 of them became a mind-boggling exercise. And so as I describe in the book, what we did is we brought uh, – we've had a technological answer. And this is a great example of – you know, where the newest technology is not always um, the most useful, but it became incredibly important because we had a time-sensitive problem. And so what we did is we brought um, 3D digital laser scanners and, and um, people who are technicians who are trained in this ability to digitize 3D objects where they're able to capture an immense amount of digital data about these objects – in their place in the ground, showing the arrangement of the bones, how they were organized, um, their spread relative to one another. As I said, these skeletons, um, there were some 40 odd of them, and they were preserved meters apart from each other, uh, all in an area of about two American football fields. So we wanted to answer the question of why. Why were all these skeletons there? But to do that, we had to capture digital data first. And that's what, um, as I explain the book, how we figured that out, and what the answer that it yielded uh, was pretty important. Uh, serendipity happens in science, and this was a good example of that.
0: We don't want to give it all away uh, to yeah, our exactly. listeners uh, from reading uh, your book, Spied on Whales. But we meant we had talked a little bit about uh, the earliest ancestors being um, small. And then from your, work, from your work studying these whale fossils, like those in Chile, uh, when did whales become as big as they are today? Why was there a
1: shift? Oh, that's such uh, – so that's a, another um, great question I think people have is that, well, if whales were once small and now they're big, what happened? How did how did that ever happen? And you might imagine that evolution happens in this kind of slow and gradual way that it goes – that it's just diffusion through time. And we're talking about some 50 million years total of whales' evolutionary history. Um, the discovery of Sarabaina happened uh, in, a, in the last uh, – that's about – uh, at maybe nine million years old, that's in the last uh 20% of whale evolutionary history. But even then, at that time, whales were not the giants that we see them today. We don't see blue whale and fin whale and right whale sized animals until very recently in their evolutionary history. And for me as a paleontologist, um, I throw these numbers around as if it's uh casual, you know, as if it's like uh, last week's dental appointment. But, um, uh, these these values are pretty pretty s- spectacular when you think about millions of years, but for whale evolutionary history, it's only in the last few moments of time that they become these giants of of the oceans, and we think a lot of that has to do with the changes that happened in the last few mi- million years to Earth's climate and oceans, the onset of the ice ages. So the so the um, emergence of an ice cap on the northern hemisphere, which has come and gone. But we live at a very strange time in Earth history relative to the last probably – 100 million years when we have ice caps, uh, maybe not for much longer, but on the North and South Poles. And what that's done is that's changed the productivity of the oceans. That's made it more patchy in space and time so that these resources that people are used to seeing on natural history shows of giant sardine bait balls or massive swarms of krill that happen during the summer months along coastlines... That's a very recent geologic phenomenon tied to the productivity shifts that happen with these ice ages. And we think that's what drove whale body size to get really, really big very recently, especially for the filter feeders like blue whales and right whales.
0: You mentioned blue whales. So when we we think about this particular creature, no creature ever has been bigger than the blue whales we have today.
1: Yeah. Isn't that an amazing fact? I mean, I think that's that's another um, aspect about looking at the history of whales that people wouldn't realize is that blue whales alive today are heavier than any dinosaur that we've ever discovered. Um, you're talking about a mammal that can weigh as much as 300,000 pounds, maybe even more. That's uh, an amount, that's a staggering amount of biomass. And um, I think it's – if you're any kind of scientist, there's so many questions that you can uh, you can ask about that, whether they're questions about physiology, about anatomy, about physics. Um, and it's not just blue whales that are incredibly large. Fin whales, the second largest ma- um, of the whales, second longest actually, um, they weigh some 50, 60 tons. That's uh, on the order of 200,000 pounds. Uh, right whales and bowhead whales, they're all on that scale of 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 ocean giants. So we really do live in this strange time in earth history when there are giants among us. And the amazing thing is, I think as a scientist, for me, at least we hardly know that much about them. There's so many questions that we still haven't answered about them. And that's, that's an amazing thing that makes it, I think very much, um, uh, uh, it makes a living right now, uh, kind of we're alive in the golden age of whale science and, and, um, I'm ex- I hope that's something that I can communicate in my book is that there's so much that we still have yet to know about them.
0: Uh, before we head to break, Nick, I, I did want to ask you about um, the fact that you're doing more than just studying fossils. Uh, obviously, you, you were there with that amazing find in Chile. But in your book, you talk about uh, going to the Antarctic and helping tag whales and the difficulties yeah. of researching them. Can you walk us through a little bit of that?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, if you want to know anything about a whale that's alive today, How do you figure that out Uh, short of coming across a carcass on a beach? So if you want to study living whales, you got to get out on a boat. Uh, Fortunately, today we have uh, wonderful advances in technology that give us the ability to place um a suction cup tag on the back of these whales that has all the instrumentation that our that our smartphones do uh that can record changes in uh, pitch yawn roll that can record audio and video and so you can imagine if you wrap up all those all those instruments uh into uh, a housing that's waterproof and you can somehow get that to stick on the back of a whale you might know something about what it does for the 99% of its life, that it's not around at the surface, that it's underwater doing its thing. And so I've had the ability to work with colleagues who are are at the vanguard of this whole new way of studying animals using biologging probes. And uh, it's, as I talk about in the book, it's a bit of a rodeo because you have to get alongside a, a 40, 50-ton mammal in its environment, uh, reach out with a poll and slap that tag on the back and then recover it some hours or days later uh, because it has a little radio uh, 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 um, emitter so you can actually go back and find it. Um, download those data and figure out what it all means. Um, uh, it's... It's such a revolution in understanding the lives of whales because when you think about it, the times that we see whales are really when they come to the surface, when they maybe breach, and make one of those huge splashes or, or come up for air. And otherwise, we don't really have insight into their lives, which are spent, again, 99 percent of the time underwater.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nalpa Joining us again from Minnesota Public Radio in Rochester, Minnesota, our guest today, Smithsonian paleontologist Nick Pyenson. His new book is Spying on Whales. Coming up, we're going to continue our conversation and take some time learning about how the whaling industry impacted the whale population. What questions do you have about whales and our impact on them? Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I <laughs> live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about how whales evolved into the giants of today with us from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in Rochester, Minnesota is Dr. Nick Pyneson, a paleontologist at the Smithsonian and the author of this new book, Spine on Whales, the Past, Present, and Future of Earth's Most Awesome Creatures. We heard a little from Nick about how studying whales can be difficult when these creatures spend so much of their lives deep underwater. Uh, before we uh, learn a little bit more about New England's uh, legacy in the whaling industry and its impact on whale populations today. Uh, Nick, I wanted to hear a little bit from you about, again, uh, our ancient history with whales and then some of how we've impacted them in uh, recent decades uh, with the population and which species are left. And I'm curious about what you have been able to uncover in your research.
1: Well, I think one of the most interesting aspects, I think we'll talk about a bit about whaling in uh, in a few moments. But one of the most interesting aspects about looking at our recent interactions with whales is that very few we in the twentieth century, uh, whaling industrial whaling killed some two to three million whales. And the author of that study is actually uh, going to be on this show in a few moments. Um, but none of the species went extinct. and it, instead, um, at least in the 20th century. Now in the 21st century, we're beginning to realize the scope of our impacts may not have to be direct. That Through indirect consequences of habitat modification or pollution or fisheries, we're still able to have an incredible impact on whale populations. And there's two really good examples uh, that come to mind. The first one is the Yangtze River Dolphin that I mentioned earlier in China. there doesn't seem to be any left. uh, And that's because it only lived in the Yangtze River. And that river was dammed up uh, to make uh, room for the Three Gorges Dam, this massive structure. And it changed the whole water flow and um, ecology of that river. And with it, um, scale of human impacts on that environment that just seems to have left no room for the Yangtze River dolphin. There are very few specimens in museum of that species. So that's an extinction in our time. And we're about to probably witness another one, unfortunately, with this very small porpoise that lives in the Gulf of California called the vaquita. Uh, There may be less than a dozen left. And they are indirectly threatened by fisheries as well, entangled in gill nets uh, because they happen to live in the same habitat that Uh, a large fish called the totoaba does, and that the swim bladder of a totoaba fetches enormous sums of money on Asian markets. So um, whales are kind of living both at the mercy and peril of our civilization, and the North Atlantic right whale off the eastern seaboard is another great example of that. Um, So there's a lot of um, concern about the fate of whales on the planet right now. Some of them seem to be doing quite well. That is, after we've stopped whaling them, humpbacks have been delisted from the, the endangered species list since 1994. Um, and one of the big questions I think is sci- that scientists have is um, have whales recovered to their pre-whaling levels. So the species that were the most the that were the greatest targets for whaling, um, have they come back? And if they haven't, what does that say about the state of the world's oceans? These are big open-ended questions that again are are hard to study because whales live big lives in big environments. And I think that's something that we're just becoming uh, more aware of.
0: When we talk about whether their populations have rebounded and you mentioned it's difficult to study, it's part of that with the way- way The records were kept from the whaling industry. Maybe an underestimation of how many whales were killed.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a big problem that goes with any detective work. And I, you know, as you said, the, the whole book is kind of a, a testimony to the detective work that it takes to understand mysterious animals uh, like whales. Um, but certainly, for whaling, we have an incomplete record of the uh, extent and. Um, scale of whaling across the world's oceans. Even though it was a matter of industry, it really wasn't tabulated in any detail until the 20th century. And it's because we have tabulated records, these statistics about uh, large catalogs of whale hunts, that we're able to know something about what happened. And that scale of biomass removal is at, on the scale of of what happened on land with passenger pigeons and American bison uh, in the 19th century, certainly. So um, we don't know everything about what was once hunted in the oceans. And that's certainly true as we go further back in time to, say, Yankee whaling or Basque whaling. And in those cases, we're just left with um, guesstimates. We have to make kind of the best of the little information available. Um, so yeah, the, the being able to study what really just happened, even in the 20th century, it is susceptible to bias. We know that, for example, Soviet whaling was underreported. And that's through a lot of great detective work that has been conducted only in the last 20 years or so to uncover just the kinds of biases that were uh, happening in the whaling industry. Um, I think of it as a giant ecological experiment on the world's oceans, that large-scale removal of whale biomass, and the ramifications of that we're we're just beginning to understand as scientists.
0: For more on the history of whaling here in New England, joining our conversation is Bob Rocha, Director of Science Education at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts. Uh, Bob, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Good morning. Good Morning, Nick.
0: Morning. Uh, Now, Bob, uh, we have heard that New Bedford was once the whaling capital of the world. Uh, Tell us how uh, uh, New Bedford got to that point.
2: Well, yeah, for uh, probably 60 to 80 years, it was certainly the center of the global whaling industry when whaling was performed under sail and with muscle power. Once um, whaling became industrialized, New Bedford got left left behind because people that were putting the money into the industry chose not to make those industrial changes and just decided, you know, we'll let it fade out and they put their money into other things. Um but uh the city happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right people back in the seven in the late seventeen hundreds when a lot of folks of uh the Quaker religion were pushed out of Massachusetts Bay Colony and Plymouth Bay Colony and places like that. <clears throat> And um, they found their way down here. They were on Nantucket as well, and they were whaling from there because you get an island with not many options. Whaling was one of those options. Making a living from the sea was one of those options. Um, but eventually, the ships had to get bigger to go further away to get the whales. And they found their way here. And not only were they able to, you know, they. They were able to get access to a wider range of material resources. They were also able to get themselves to markets a lot easier. And eventually all the support industries that the whaling industry needed grew here. And really um, we were able to outcompete most other ports for the whaling industry just because of uh, the infrastructure, a deep water port, the know-how, Uh, the willingness to invest the uh, capital in it. And, um, you know, especially after the War of 1812 ended, so from, you know, 1814 after the Treaty of Ghent on through the Civil War, uh, the whaling industry was huge here.
0: Mm. So uh, remind us again of all the different uh, things that whale parts were used for.
2: Sure. Well. You take the blubber off of a baleen whale, you can certainly use that for heat and for light. And then as Nick was talking about earlier, um, the baleen itself, you know, you can strip that off the whale. And because it's plastic-like but made out of keratin, before we invented plastic, we would use that for a whole variety of things. Something as simple as a collar stiffener um, to leave springs on a carriage, hoop skirts, corset stays, snow goggles, buggy whips. Um, you know, and some other things like, like that and then animals like a sperm whale and I should point out that tooth whales have waxy esters in their blubber whereas the baleen whales don't so when you turn that blubber into a liquid oil the properties are going to be different and the uses are going to be different so lighthouses around the world were lit up with sperm whale oil from the blubber um, lamps and um, you know, also for that purpose, but then you had that oil being made into a lubricant because it would hold its viscosity over a very wide range of temperatures. So if you were sailing north or sailing south and across various latitudes, you knew that your moving parts were not going to seize up because the oil turned into a solid or just stopped working. So it was certainly valuable for that reason as well. And the oil that was taken out of the the case, the the uh, spermaceti organ, you could do several pressings of that and squeeze out oily oil and be left behind with this wax, which made for the cleanest burning, brightest burning, no odor candles, and you could get top dollar for those. And then there was one other odd thing that would come out of the body of of some sperm whales, and that's this black tarry intestinal secretion that would. Wrap around the sharp edges of the beaks, as you know, because these whales are eating a ton of squid every day. Everything in a squid digests really quickly, except for the beaks. Well, these beaks have sharp edges, and so these intestines would coat the sharp edges with the stuff called ambergris, and I've heard it pronounced ambergris and ambergris, and eventually that finds its way out of the animal's body, especially upon death, floats up gets a little harder because it's now in the cold ocean as opposed to uh, inside the warm animal, oxidizes, and eventually floats around, washes up on a beach, or whale hunters would find it from a dead animal. And somebody, and I don't know who, and I need to read up on this, figured out that you could extract a protein from it called Ambrian. Actually, I I think it's an alcohol. And you could use that in perfumes because it has amazing fixative properties. So you could use that to hold color and smell and perfume. And it was literally worth as much as gold because you really never knew when you were going to find it.
1: Mm.
0: Bob Roche is with us on the phone, director of science education at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. As we uh, take a look at uh, whales uh, this hour here on Where We Live, also with us from Minnesota Public Radio, Dr. Nick Pionson, paleontologist at the Smithsonian and author of the new book Spying on Whales. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, so Bob, uh, we, we we know that uh, Yankee whaling was one of the most important industries until uh, for part of the 19th century, then it abruptly declined. We heard Nick uh, talk earlier about uh, the amount, the number of whales uh, that were uh, killed uh, during this time, but actually it was also in the 20th century where a lot of whales uh, were killed. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, because of uh, the ability of these mechanized ships to chase after whales that the Yankee whalers could never catch, they were able to go after blue whales. And fin whales and minke and say and brooders and keep on also going after sperm whale and right whale and gray whale and humpback and bowhead. So they were you know, so, you know, to them there's this huge market out there, this huge resource just waiting to be taken. So they were able to take, take these huge animals and turn them into a whole variety of other products that the Yankee whalers couldn't make just because, you know, it's a different resource and different processing techniques, and then somebody came up with a process of hydrogenization, and, you know, these, these industrial ships, and I, I remember, you know, one of the, one of the reports I was reading, it was a report from the 1930s, and one of the comments from the observers was, they could take a 90-foot whale and make it disappear in 90 minutes, so over the course, just, you know, in the research that I did with my co-authors between 1900 and 1999, you know, there were almost it was almost 2.9 million whales. And these are the ones that we know about, and I'm not including any of the beaked whales, any of the dolphin species. It's just those big animals um, that were accounted for that were removed from the ocean. And most of that was by 1986, because by then the uh, there was a voluntary moratorium that the whaling nations decided to abide by and that was in full effect by 1986.
0: And, and Bob, how are you able to get those numbers uh, in this report that you worked on? Because some of it was this uh, legal whaling that was going on?
2: Right, so uh, quite a bit of it comes from a database that's maintained by the International Whaling Commission and that's getting up- updated all the time and you know, the people that have worked on that have spent decades going through reports and then, as Nick had mentioned earlier, um, there's been a lot of good de- detective work done, a lot of it by my co-authors on this paper, about whaling that the Russians did between the 40s and the 70s and how they either over some to cover for the fact that they were taking species that they shouldn't and they under- under-reported those. Um, and this de- detective work was really helped by the fact that there was several biologists on these Soviet ships that kept the accurate data to the peril of their own lives while submitting other reports for the pleasure of the government um, in the USSR. So luckily, these accurate reports were kept, and then as politics changed and you were able to get these things out and get access to them, the actual numbers came out. So the paper that we did was really the first time that the IWC database Got melded with this research into the Russian data.
0: And IWC International Whaling Commission. Commission. Okay. Yep. I wanted to go back to to Nick Pynson uh, because uh, you know part of what you do is uh, looking at the past to understand uh, evolution and and uh, where whales are today in terms of how they evolved. But you and your book also go on uh, a whaling a uh, boat. Uh, in Iceland, where they still hunt for whales to learn more about the uh, anatomy of whales. Can you talk a little bit about that, Nick? And also, were, at any time, were you conflicted uh, by, by being on the boat? When we, we know that, um, as uh, we heard Bob say, whaling has gone out of favor, but certain countries still, still hunt for whales.
1: Right. So uh, the United States is still a whaling country. Uh, just because it doesn't happen in the lower 48 states, we tend to forget about it. But uh, the fact of the matter is that indigenous peoples of the Arctic, both in Alaska and in Canada and Greenland, all consume whale meat. They still hunt because whale meat provides a significant portion of their daily needs. Uh, and it's part of their culture, too. Um, um, in many cases, they've been whaling for thousands of years. Um and so that's, that's uh, a form of whaling that's uh, overseen in part by the International Whaling Commission, uh, which provides quotas and provides actual numbers for how many whales they think can be hunted each year. Uh, and uh, among the nations that still whale in much larger numbers, that would be Norway, Iceland, and Japan. Now, the first two, Norway and Iceland, engage in commercial whaling. So uh, they treat uh, hunting whales just like uh, any other fishery where they're going after the meat. Uh, In Japan, it's different because what they say is uh, they call it scientific whaling. And so that's an agenda-driven science. And a lot of the questions they're asking can be answered in ways that are non-lethal. And that's the source of a lot of the controversy about Japanese whaling. Um, Again, you know, a lot of these – Whaling happens in a social context, and so you have to be kind of aware of the different ways in which it happens around the world if you want to study it. And in Iceland, like I said, it was—it's a commercial whaling operation. So a lot of these carcasses—in—in in this case, it was um, Iceland hunts both fin whales and minke whales. Although this year they've stopped hunting minke whales, they still hunt fin whales. Um, Both minke and fin whales are these baleen whales. Uh, Fin whales are the second longest uh, whale on the planet. And what happens is these carcasses are stripped of their meat and then really not that useful to anybody else. Uh, But for a scientist, that's an incredible opportunity to be able to investigate their anatomy. And one of the most striking things to me is that of the two to three million whales that were killed in the 20th century, very few of them were examined in any kind of real detail by biologists who wanted to investigate their anatomy. Um, Occasionally records of their parasites and maybe length, width, and girth data were were collected. Uh, But other than that, we don't know that much about the inner anatomy of these enormous whales. And again, this goes back to the logistics of studying them. They are so big that any opportunities to study them are limited by the circumstances in which you discover them. So for the most part, if you want to study the anatomy of these very large whales, you're limited to uh, the the happenstance of a carcass on the beach. Iceland is different. You have access to the fresh carcasses. Fresh anatomy means that you can investigate so much more about their tissues. Mm-hmm. And that's where we made this really uh, strange discovery in Iceland about a sensory organ in the jaws that helps coordinate this in unusual feeding behavior. Um, your question about whether or not I was, I, was, um, I had mixed feelings about it, sure, absolutely. Um, but I thought that uh, my job as a scientist was the most important thing and that that's really where um, I, I, I try to make the biggest uh, impact, I think.
0: This is where we live. Again, joining us today is Dr. Nick Pineson, paleontologist at the Smithsonian, author of the new book, Spying on Whales. We're going to head to break, but I want to thank Bob Rocha for joining us, Director of Science Education at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts. Bob, thank you.
2: Thank you, Lucy. Nick, we'll see you October 4th.
0: That's right, we'll have some details. Absolutely. we'll have some details on our website about uh, Nick Pineson coming to New England at the New Bedford uh, Whaling Museum in the fall. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about the future uh, for whales. Uh, what impact has climate change and more on our human impact on whales. We're going to talk a little bit more with Nick Pineson before we end the show. I'm Lucy Albitanchel. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Our guest today is Nick Pyneson, paleontologist at the Smithsonian, author of the new book, Spying on Whales. You can read an excerpt on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Nick, we talked briefly about uh, the right, the North Atlantic right whales. And I'm I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about um, what's happening with that uh, population. I I believe it was on the rebound, but lately uh, not looking so good.
1: Yeah, so uh, North Atlantic right whales are among the largest, they're in that class of whales that are extremely large. And they're called right whales because they were the right whales to hunt. It's a common name that's held on through the time of uh, early whaling uh, in this country. And they were the objects of, of, of the whaling industry from uh, since the time of Yankee whaling. And even before that too, uh, North Atlantic right whales were hunted uh, all throughout the Atlantic. And we have good records of Basque whaling of North Atlantic right whales for, uh, you know, almost uh, 10 centuries, for almost a millennium. So there's this long history of hunting North Atlantic right whales. And uh, that whaling stopped uh, in the 20th century as um, there was just simply not enough of those whales left. And what's interesting is that right whales have had a hard time recovering. So they're on the endangered species list. And uh, since we've started studying them in some detail with photo ID catalogs, so this is population population the 450 or so that remain off the eastern seaboard, we basically know all the individuals uh, from detailed uh, photographic records, uh, aerial surveys. And one of the most interesting things is now in the 21st century, we realize that one of the greatest sources of threats to their continued existence is not through whaling, but through the accidents that happen because they live in the same habitats that we use. So ship strike, net entanglement, those seem to be major sources of mortality for North Atlantic right whales. And this is of huge concern because last year, 17 North Atlantic right whales showed up dead between Canada and the United States. Uh, for reasons that we still don't know entirely, but some of them are attributable to net entanglement and and trauma from ship strike. And when you lose 17 right whales, and this spring no new calves were seen, it's pretty obvious that the mathematics of that Mm -hmm. will lead towards extinction if you extrapolate out. So there's good reason to be concerned. But I think one of the um, we do know the solutions at hand. And uh, one of them, for example, is changing shipping lanes. Uh, right whales feed in, on copepods, which are these very small marine organisms uh, that show up in large densities during the summer. And in many of the places that right whales feed, those happen to be ma- where major shipping lanes uh, happen today, like Boston Harbor. So we, if we're able to somehow alert ships to the presence of right whales and change the uh, shape and, and timing of shipping lanes, we can mitigate a lot of the potential mortalities.
0: Now, Nick, we just have a couple of minutes left, but you write in your book, uh, again, with this uh, possibility that we will see uh, ice-free Arctic uh, in our lifetime, some of these uh,
1: whale species may adapt, like the bowheads.
0: Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. So... Um, it's in the news that the Arctic is bellwether of climate change and that it's melting faster and it's changing faster than the rest of the world. I just heard on NPR this morning that uh, Maersk is now shipping across the Arctic during the summer. So this is a, a um, this is foretelling what we will see in the coming decades, that summer sea ice will disappear in the Arctic. And with that, I think the Arctic will be maybe a more productive place for whales. That means more productivity, more food for them. But there's uh, other changes at work too. Invasions from warmer latitudes of other species. We know that killer whales are showing up more frequently in the Arctic and they are certainly harassing and chasing and probably in some cases killing other species of whales. Uh, That's to say nothing of the scale of human impact. If you have a lot more ships in the Arctic, that means a lot more chances for ship strike, oil spills. Those are all major human threats to their continued survival.
0: Uh, when we think about uh, climate ch- climate change and uh, when we look at carbon dioxide levels, that could also impact uh, food sources for the whales.
1: Oh, absolutely. Both uh, – I'd say mostly in indirect ways. So as the oceans are heating up, they're also acidifying too for different reasons. Um, the acidification of the oceans probably is going to have an effect on certain kinds of species that whales consume. So this includes zooplankton-like krill, uh, who may have a hard time uh, growing under these conditions in new oceans. So for whales that have very specific uh, diets, like blue whales, which almost exclusively eat krill, this means that they might be in jeopardy for indirect reasons related to climate change in the future.
0: Uh, We should mention uh, throughout your book, again, you take us on quite the journey, Nick. Uh, Throughout the book, you have these uh, beautiful illustrations. Uh, Tell us why you chose to do illustrations or had someone do them versus uh, traditional pictures of whales that we find in books.
1: Oh, this is such a good question. So if you look at um, the literature on whales, there's this great uh, 1930 edition of Moby Dick, classic in American literature illustrated by Rockwell Kent in woodcut style, and they're dramatic. Um, it's some people's eyes, they might look cartoony, but uh, it's a continuous aesthetic, and I, I like it personally. And something I wanted to do was to take the reader along and definitely provide them with illustrations, but I also didn't want to ruin the mystery The second thing I wanted to do was create a continuous aesthetic. I didn't want to interrupt the stories with photos and diagrams. I wanted pictures that inspired. And that's why I had a scientific illustrator who happened to be my uh, former student and collaborator, Alex Borsma. I love her art, and she illustrated my book.
0: Well, we've really enjoyed speaking with you today, uh, Nick Pineson again, a paleontologist at the Smithsonian, author of the new book, Spying on Whales. We'll have information about your trip to New England in the fall. Also, listeners can read an excerpt of your book on our website. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Happy to be here. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Again, you can read the excerpt on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Thanks for listening.